Hey, thank you so much. I don't want it to be overkill. I don't guess it ever could, but just I can't express to you how much I do love you. Only eternity will, will truly reveal what you mean to me, each one of you. Each one of you are special to me. I don't care if you've been here all your life, if you've been here six weeks or six months or whatever. You've, all, you've become a part of my story. And uh, I'm everyday people. You know, we're, we're everyday people. And I'm hearing that pop song on my head, too. I'm everyday people. But uh, and I love that song that, that you guys sang. All of the music this morning just uh, goes right along with what I'm preaching this morning. We're in the book of Ruth, fourth chapter. Last week, we talked about Boaz going to the elders and the gate of the city. And he convenes a council, if you will, of these ten elders. And if you remember, there was a problem in our story. There was a little hiccup. There was a man who was a closer kinsman than Boaz. Uh, the Hebrew calls him Poloni Almoni, which is a Hebrew idiom which means Mr. So-and-so. And so we, we read the, the narrative where Mr. So-and-so is presented uh, by Boaz, the, his right of redemption. And uh, immediately, initially, he's willing to redeem the land as long as it's just a real estate transaction. But then Boaz explains further the terms and conditions of the redemption. And then Mr. So-and-so, after counting the cost, says, I don't want to pay uh, I can't pay. He said it'll mar my inheritance. And a lot of commentators take a real negative stance on the guy. And they say, you know, because he was not willing to pay the right of, uh, the, pay the redemption, you know, he, he tries to preserve his name, but he goes down in history as a no-name. But here's how I think it. And it's just, just my opinion, so take it or leave it. I think God is a God of grace. And, and I think this guy... Imagine going down in history as the guy who turned down the right to be the grandfather of the Messiah. And I just think that God, in his mercy, spared this guy the humiliation of having his name go down as the one who refused to be the grandfather of the Messiah. Uh, and Boaz, however, upon hearing the terms and the conditions, uh, he not only was a goel, a near kinsman, he not only had the means to do it he not only was willing to do it but he was willing to meet all of the obligations <laughs> he, he fit all of the qualifications for a goel a kinsman redeemer and he was not concerned about the price the man didn't need a field Boaz was already wealthy but Boaz found treasure in the field Amen. and so he was willing to sell everything that he had to get the treasure in the field Ruth was a treasure and our redeemer Jesus Christ he was willing to pay it all. He, he didn't, God was willing, he didn't spare anything. He's, he's, he didn't spare his only begotten son. And how shall he not now freely with him give us all things? What a perspective that ought to give us. And so Mr. So-and-so, he vanishes from the pages of history now. And now we're left with several more players in the story. And that brings us to Ruth chapter 4. In verse 9, I'm going to begin reading there. Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and all that was Machlon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Machlon, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. I believe there's a lot more there than, than what I could expound on. But you know, aren't you glad the Redeemer keeps your name from being blotted out? Amen. Your name is going to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life if he's your kinsman Redeemer. And from the gate of this place, you are witnesses this day. It, this has all the drama of a courtroom proceeding uh, and the legality and the finality of it. And if we, were, uh, if we were watching this on a movie screen, I imagine that about this time the symphony would swell. 
and we would hear that music. That, that score would just be breathtaking as this appears to be the climax of the story, but yet there's more to be told. And all the people, in verse 11, that were in the gates and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord, and again, that should be all caps in your Bible, meaning this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, yod heh is the Hebrew alphabet. The Lord, make the woman that is coming to your house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. My, oh my. Is Boaz ever famous in Bethlehem? Is Obed ever famous in Bethlehem? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the privilege of preaching the word. And God, I, I'm humbled. I'm humbled to be here. I'm humbled to be the pastor of this church. And I don't take it lightly. God, help me to make full proof of my ministry here, Lord. I appreciate all of the, the gifts that have been given to me. I appreciate all the prayers that have been prayed. But all that will be in vain if I stand before you and I don't hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. So God, help me to be faithful in whatever realm you've called me to, to oversee. And that includes this message today. Lord, guide my lips, my heart, my mind. Help me to preach and speak only as the oracles of God. And we give you the glory for everything that's going to be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All the people said, we are witnesses. And they, asked, they expressed a wish, a prayer, that Jehovah would make this woman like Rachel and Leah. Wow, what, what a reversal of roles for Ruth. She starts out the story as an outsider, a foreigner. And the narrator, the narrator here is careful to remind us of her nationality. I mean, how many times has she called the Moabitess? She's not, she's not among the covenant people. She's outside of the covenants of promise. Can I say it like this? Without hope, outside of the, the promises that were given unto the fathers. But now she's gone from being an outsider, and then she became a, a gleaner, which is about as low as you can get on the proverbial totem pole, pardon the expression, or the caste system or whatever. She's a gleaner. She has been humbled to, to do the work of a beggar pretty much. And then we see her as a, a maid, damsel, who is eligible. She's put off her garments of widowhood. And she's made a claim on the, the kinsman redeemer. And I'm not going to get real deep in the types and shadows here, but I'll say this. No matter how much Boaz loved her, and it's evident that he did, he loved Ruth from day one. And it wasn't just her outward beauty that he was in love with. He was in love with her inner beauty. He had heard all the kindness that she had shown to Naomi. And it was just it was a, a magnetic kind of thing for Boaz. And he loved her. But no matter how much he loved her, no matter, no matter how much Boaz wanted to move in the situation, he did not act until... Ruth claimed him as the kinsman redeemer. God loves you and me with an everlasting love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it will never become a reality for you until you and I personally lay a claim and ask him to be our redeemer. We have to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. Jesus is not going to kick down the door of your heart. He stands outside and knocks and he says, If any man will open the door, I will come in. Jesus will not decline an invitation. Praise God. If you invite him, Jesus said, The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. God won't turn you away if you come sincerely asking. But she's gone from an outsider, a widow, a gleaner, a woman who's put off her garments of widowhood to now a bride. And if I could use a New Testament analogy, she's not only a bride now, but she's been grafted in. See, she's not just a second-rate Israelite. 
She's like Leah and Rachel that built the house of Israel. Ain't that amazing? I mean, that's a remarkable turn of events. To go from being a Moabite, an outsider, to being among the founding matriarchs of God's chosen people. Hallelujah. And God will do the same thing for you. If you'll lay claim on Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, you'll go from being without hope and outside of the covenants of promise to being a member of the family and the household of God. Hallelujah. What an amazing thing. Not a second class citizen as it were, but, but fellow citizens with the saints. Folks, this book is, you know, it's written by numerous different authors, but it's one story. It's one story. It's God's love letter to you and me. And when you read about Ruth and Boaz, understand that this is your story. These are your people. Somebody asked me recently, do you think we'll meet Ruth and Boaz in heaven? Of course. They're family. They're family. We're family. Well, how are we going to know what they look like? I don't know. God's going to solve all that, that issue for us. How did Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, how did he know who Moses and Elijah were? He called them by name. That was before Polaroids were invented. You know, you had to shake the... That was before that. How did he know? For a moment, for a moment just for a moment, God's glory came down, and I believe the veil came off of Peter's eyes for just a moment, you know. And it went back real quick because then he said something goofy. You know, you want me to make three tabernacles? <laughs> and that's the way it is for you and me, right? I mean, we could be riding the apex of God's glory and then in a moment the devil will take advantage of us and, and we'll say something goofy. And we'll be reminded that we're just clay. We're humans. We're dust. And God knows that too, thank, thankfully. He remembers our frame that we're but dust. But now she's become grafted into the family and they wish that she would be uh, like Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. And they had a little help, too, <laughs> along the way, but I won't detour. And do worthily in Ephrathah, that's the ancient name for Bethlehem, and be famous there in Bethlehem. Boaz is famous now. Not just because he's a wealthy landowner, but because he is a, a great, 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 great ancestor of the Messiah, Yeshua. What an amazing thing for Boaz. And then we get to verse 12. And let your house be like the house of Pharaoh's. Whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Now, because we're in mixed company and because there's some adult subject matter, I'm going to re greatly redact the story of Tamar. Is that okay? Yes. But, but I am, <laughs> am going to reference it just, you know, just so we are familiar. Judah, who is the, the ancestor of the clan here, the tribe, Judah has been promised... Uh, he, he will eventually be promised at the end of the book of Genesis that through him the Messiah would come. He would come through the tribe of Judah. But, but Judah, uh, the story of Joseph dominates the latter part of Genesis. From like chapter 37 to the rest of the book pretty much is, is Joseph's story. Well, right after Joseph is sold into slavery, and uh, there's an interesting story, I think it's in chapter 38 of Genesis. Don't, don't turn there. But, but we find Judah, he, he, uh, he meets a Canaanite woman, and, uh, and they have kids, and the first son, the Bible says that God killed him. We're not told what he did, but you know, he must not have been a great guy. His name was Ur, by the way. How ironic is that? Uh, but <laughs> and then the second guy was Onan, and uh, even though this was not in the law of Moses, so to speak, because we had not, this is before the law, Evidently, they had some knowledge of leveret marriage, you know, meaning uh, near kinsmen kind of stuff. And so Onan then was supposed to raise up seed uh, for, for his brother, and he refused to do so. And, uh, and God killed him too. Amazing. And then the third son, Shelah, or Shelah, however you pronounce it, um, Judah was a little hesitant about giving him to, to Tamar, who we, you know, I think we sang about her this morning, Tamar and Rahab. Uh, and so you, you can understand, like, he's already lost two boys to Tamar, and so he might be a little reluctant to let the third one marry her. She might be what we would call a black widow. <laughs> I don't know. 
But anyway, so he, he, you know, whatever his reasons were, he doesn't give uh, Sheila to, to Tamar. And so she takes matters into her own hands, as women often do. <laughs> she t- takes matters in her own hands. And she saw, you know, that Judah's holding out on her. And so she comes up with a plot. And so she, she dresses up as a, uh, a woman of the night. I'll just use that euphemism. She dresses up as a woman of the night, and she seduces Judah and has children by him. And, uh, and, and he doesn't realize it until you get to the end of the story there in Genesis 38. And we find out that Judah uh, actually ends up uh, having these, is the father of these children. And, and the, one of the, the boys is named Perez. Okay. Now, the genealogy in here doesn't start with Judah. It starts with Perez. And I think we're supposed to see the analogy here, the leveret marriage, and the circumstances were completely different here. In Genesis, we had unwilling participants in kind of a sordid affair. And in Ruth, we have a contrast. We have godly people who are willing to do the right thing, and God blesses that. But that's what this whole thing, the house of Pharaohs and Tamar, bear unto Judah. Interesting that... Uh, that these women appear in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, Tamar, Rahab, the harlot, Ruth. And my favorite is the one who's not even called by name. She's the wife of Uriah. And I'll give you some conjectures on that uh, sometime if you're interested. If you want to go out for a cup of coffee and, and hear my thoughts on that, I'll give them to you. But anyway, so it says that Boaz uh, took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went into her, The Lord, Jehovah, again, the covenant name of God, he gave her conception and she bare a son. Now, this is the second time in the book of Ruth that we see God actively involved in the lives of the characters of the story. The first time, it says that Jehovah visited his people in giving them bread. Remember, there are two problems where they needed food and they needed family. And God actively provides both of them. The majority of the story of Ruth is a story of providence. It's a story of everyday, ordinary people doing ordinary things and achieving extraordinary things through an extraordinary God. Our God is the God of the extraordinary. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Is it working in you? Say amen and I'll know you're still awake. (laughs) Or oh me. Or let's go eat. Uh, All right. So... It says that the Lord gave her conception. So this was, let, let me just give you a couple of things here, a couple of insights. Number one, we see that this was God actively giving her this child. In the ancient world, children were not seen as an inconvenience. They were seen as a blessing. Amen. The fruit of the womb, not the fruit of the loom, as I said one day, Brother Adam. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Happy is the man that has his quiver full. But Lord, my quiver is full, I think. You know, so. We're good. But, <laughs> now grandchildren, I, I, you know, as many as you want to give me, Lord. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Don't want to get in the flesh here. But the Lord gave her this. But, but the Lord didn't just give her a child. That would have been great. But what happens if they have a daughter? Well, the, the whole process is going to you know, have to be, we're gonna, it's going to be delayed. So God doesn't just give her a child, but a son. God did that. God blessed her with a son. It might be interesting sometime to us to, for us to do a story of the miracle births of the Bible. Because there's a lot of them. As you go through the lineage of Jesus Christ even. But as we go through this, but... Uh, God gave her a son. Verse 14. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which has not left you this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. So one thing that might strike you as unique now is that the Goel, the kinsman, is not Boaz, but it's going to be the baby. Uh, Obed is going to be the, the kinsman. Now, Let's talk just a moment. Well, let me go ahead and read these next few verses. And he shall be unto you a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age. 
For your daughter-in-law, which loves you, which is better to you than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And I don't think the idea here, I've looked at Jewish rabbi, rabbinical commentaries and Christian commentaries, and I don't think it means that she became a wet nurse to it. And by the way, I hate that phrase, wet nurse, and I just, you know, I said it anyway, but I don't think that that's what's implied here, but rather that she, you know, that she took the child and became a, a guardian, a loving uh, guardian to the, to the baby and became nurse to it. And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name. Interesting custom there, isn't it? We don't know how widespread that was, if that was a commonplace. I don't know of anywhere else in the Bible that that, uh, that happens where the, uh, all the women there give it a name. But there's a son born to who? Well, Ruth's the one that was pregnant, right? Uh, but there's a son born to Naomi. Huh. Interesting. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh, wow. Seems like there's some big things in play here, some things that are bigger, bigger uh, implications than just one little family and little hamlet outside of Jerusalem. Seems like God's up to some big stuff. Something's going on in the little town of Bethlehem. Big things are going on. You know, big things can go on in Peaceland, North Carolina, too. God, God loves to take... Uh, seemingly insignificant places and people and drew extraordinary things through them. You might just be a candidate if you're small in your own estimation and you've got a great big God. If you're, if you're willing to decrease and let Him increase, and give your life to Him and let Him do with it as He sees fit and let the Master make a masterpiece Amen. out of your life. So let's, let's just talk about this just for a moment, this little phrase. Now I want you to notice... There's been a, a, a reversal of roles for Naomi as well. Now, from this point on, Ruth and Boaz kind of vanished from the story. No more activity from them or, or interaction. But the focus now is on Naomi. Okay. And I think that's an often uh, misunderstood thing when we study the book of Ruth is Naomi's kind of cast aside. Everything's about the love story between Ruth and Boaz, right? And it's beautiful. Ruth Excuse me. Yeah, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz both show extraordinary kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. They both do. Ruth goes the extra mile. She loves her mother-in-law. And, and, and some of you might say that in itself is a miracle, right? But, but she, she's willing not only to embrace her mother-in-law, but she says, you know, your God will be my God, and where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. You know, she's, she's thinking beyond the resurrection with, with Naomi. Ruth does extraordinary things. Boaz shows extraordinary kindness. We show him uh, leaving out handfuls of purpose for Ruth. And he's willing. Only, remember, Ruth only asked Boaz to redeem her. Spread your skirt over me, she said. Be my Goel. Be my kinsman redeemer. But Boaz not only, and I believe this, you know, we, we question and we wonder, why did Boaz start the negotiations with the land? Right? He's not worried about the field. All he's worried about is, is Ruth, right? It's just a love story about a man and a woman. No, Ruth is getting the property back for Naomi too. Okay? Now this has big prophetic implications here, and I'm going to get to it if the Lord will let me get to it before y'all get to the steakhouse today. Uh, so hold on tight. It gets better. But anyway, but he redeems the land as well as the woman. Okay, Because both of them needed to be redeemed, the land and the woman. And so now, Naomi has had a complete reversal of her role. Now, this is interesting to me. We, we again see the women hovering around Naomi. Now, when the story first starts, we see in chapter 1, the women hovered around Naomi. The Bible says that the whole, the whole, all the women were stirred up. And they said, is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. Is that her? She's got a lot of mileage on her now. She's, you know, the years have not been kind to her. And think about this. I think it's very interesting. The first chapter of Ruth, you don't have to turn there, but, you know, in, in the first five verses, we have a bad decision was made. We have three funerals. 
and a bad decision. And I think the narrator is, is trying to get us to see that, that Elimelech did not make a great choice to go to Moab. And we've already established all the reasons the Moabites were, you know, the enemies of God. And they worshipped Chemosh, the, uh, this, this foreign deity. And, and uh, there were all these prohibitions about having relationships with the Moabites and all, and all of that stuff. But, you know, we're not all that unlike Elimelech in that sometimes we make short-term decisions that have long-term uh, consequences. Now, I don't know if Naomi, if she was on board with Elimelech's decision or not, or if he just said, this is what we're doing. We don't, we're not told, or if it was a family decision. But regardless, a decision was made, and there were basically 10 years then filled with tragedy. Well, I mean, one bad thing happening after another to Naomi. And we can understand her plight. You know, I... I don't have much use for shallow Christianity. When something tragic happens to a person and people say, well, just get over it. You know, just have some joy in the Lord. No, God created us in His image. And you know, there is a time to mourn, the Bible says. There's a time to weep. And some would look at Naomi and say, well, she's bitter. She just needs to get over it. She just needs to have more faith. Where is her faith in Jehovah? I thought she trusted in God. But we see in Naomi's story, I believe, God carrying her on eagle's wings all through the story. See, we, we get lost in the story. I think we get lost in the weeds, in the, in the love story between, between Ruth and Boaz. But I'm going to tell you, there's a love story going on between God and Naomi. There's a love story there between God and Naomi, you see. And, and we see Naomi expressing the reality of her emotions. When the women gather around and say, is this Naomi? Uh, she looks different. And what did she say? She said, don't call me that. Amen. Naomi means beautiful or pleasant. Don't call me that. Because God, and I'm paraphrasing here, God has dealt me a bitter hand. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm disappointed. And why not? We're not supposed to bury our children. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. Why not? She lost a husband. She lost a means of income, provision. And then when her sons die, she loses basically the whole name, everything. She's lost it. And she, in the natural, feels like God has abandoned her. And she calls him not only the Lord Jehovah, but she calls him Shaddai, the Almighty. And that speaks of his power. Now, how many times have we thought those same thoughts, but maybe we didn't give voice to them? God, you're an all-powerful God. God, this is nothing for you. How many times have I said that in my prayer? Maybe you've said the same thing. You know, this might be difficult for me, but God, you could just snap your finger or speak a word, and you could just change this whole situation if you wanted to. We can hear that in the, in the sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary. You know, Lord, if you'd have just been here, our brother wouldn't have died. I mean, th these are real people. These are real emotions. Ten years of tragedy have left their mark on Naomi. And she feels like God is against her. See? That's her perception. Let me preach here for a minute. Perception can often be greater than reality, but your perception is not reality. It's not. Jacob lived a great portion of his life thinking that Joseph was dead. And he made a statement, and I, it, I don't know why it resonated with me, but it resonated with me when I, it just jumped off the page at me some time back. Jacob made a statement. He said, all things are against me. That's how he felt. You know, I love the honesty of the, the you know, God doesn't whitewash the Bible's characters. They're real people with real problems and real emotions and real shortcomings and real failures and real sin and sinful attitudes. But God loves sinful people. God doesn't justify the righteous. God justifies the ungodly. Aren't you glad? I know I'm glad. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repent. Jesus loves the sinner. He hates the sin, of course, but he loves the sinner. Christ loves the sinner. Naomi is bitter, and she feels like God has left her. 
And all the while, God's just saying, just wait a little bit, Naomi. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy's coming in the morning. Naomi has, when the story opens in the first few verses of the chapter, it seems absolutely hopeless for Ruth and Naomi. I mean, it can go nowhere but up, really, for them. They're, they're in a dire situation. And she's bitter, and she's complaining to the women. God showed me this this morning when I was in the shower. I have a lot of revelations in the shower. How about you, Pastor Crabtree? That and the lawnmower. I, so I get some of the greatest ideas on the lawnmower. Not the push mower, but the riding mower. <laughs> Let me clarify that. <laughs> God showed me this. In the first part of the story, we see Naomi talking, right? I'm bitter. God's against me. And when we get bitter, we want to talk, don't we? We want to murmur and complain. We want everybody to hear about our plight, right? But in the last part of the story, Naomi is quiet, but the women are talking. Naomi's listening. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And so now Naomi's listening. And the women said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a kinsman, that he may be famous in Israel. What was her words when she first arrived back in Bethlehem? She said, I went out full, but I came back empty. I got nothing. But she had something with her. She didn't realize it. She had something great with her. She didn't realize it. That's what suffering and bitterness will do to you. It will cause you to lose your perspective on things. And you will forget all of the things that are for you. And you'll focus in on that one thing that's against you. Listen, I could have a hundred people say, Preacher, I really enjoyed that sermon today. And I could have one person say, I didn't get nothing out of it. You know what I'm going to uh, meditate on? That one person that probably had their mind on uh, uh, whatever, fried chicken at KFC. Listen, if I'm preaching the word of God, you can get something out of it if you'll open your heart and your mind and receive it. The mess, it's the message, it's not the messenger. God can use a donkey if he wants to. Some of you say he does every Sunday at Deep Springs. <laughs> <coughs> Thank you for not saying amen. You just laughed. You're like, amen, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> yes. Uh. She's not left without. But she's got a kinsman. And notice what he's going to be to her in verse 15. He says, Obed is going to be a restorer of life. The word thy is in italics in your Bible. That means it was supplied by the translators. But the child is going to be a restorer of life. You know, I believe God is in the restoration business. <laughs> I remember I was serving in a church. I was a staff member at another church. And we were having trouble. Man, we were having we were having some issues. You know, you can have problems in church. I know you, you probably, we never have those here, but in some churches, <laughs> we were having some problems. And, and I told the pastor, I said, you know, I think the best thing for us to do is just get rid of these folks. <laughs> I was young then, you know. <laughs> and the pastor looked at me and he said, Henry, the church is a place of restoration, not amputation. I said, ouch. You're right, God. You're right. I'm glad God didn't just cut me out every time I do something, you know, that he doesn't like. He's a restorer of life. Isn't it amazing what grandchildren will do for you? Amen. Amen. It, it will. You know, I can be having the worst day, and then, and then Abby will send me a picture of a little case, and I'll be like, oh, look at him, ain't he precious? <laughs> and we start talking in that little baby voice, oh, you sweet, he's so sweet. It's a restorer of life. This baby was a restorer of life to her. And, and you know, God can use any number of, uh, of means to do that for you. It doesn't have to be a grandbaby. God can bring something in your life to bring restoration. He is the God of restoration. He is. He's one day going to restore all things. All things. Hallelujah. Now, your daughter-in-law... Who loves you? The Hebrew word is a hav. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, which is better to you than seven sons. You and I can't fully appreciate the import of that statement. But to a Jewish woman, having that kind of a blessing, that kind of a wish spoken over her, would be the it would be the epitome of all blessings to be the mother of seven sons. 
Because after all, it was the hope of every Jewish woman to one day give birth to who? The Messiah. But the women said, and I hope Naomi was listening. I think she's listening now. She's over her bitter spell. Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Now, did Ruth undergo a dramatic transformation in those two months in Bethlehem? Maybe. We know she made a, a strong profession of faith in that first chapter. But Ruth had been with Naomi all along. When she got back to Bethlehem and, and, and Naomi says, I got nothing. And all along, Ruth is right there. You know, there's a miracle in your house. I got a sermon I preach. There's a miracle in your house. There's things that you are not even aware of. God will use what you have. We're always wanting God to do something, uh, you know, do something outside of our sphere of influence, outside of our gifts and abilities and callings. But God will use you right where you are. You've heard that old expression, bloom where God plants you. God will use you right where you are. You say, well, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Yes, you are. God has a way. A preacher told me one time I was so frustrated in my early years of my ministry. And I thought, you know, and I was working through all the scenarios of how this had to happen and how this had to happen. And Brother Bobby Gilly, he was a Church of God preacher, South Gastonia Church of God. He said, Brother Haney, God has a way of getting you where he wants you to be. And I thought, well, you know, out of all the books I've read, that's one of the most profound things I've ever heard. If you don't believe it, just ask Jonah. God knows how to get you where you need to be. He does. And Naomi was right where she was supposed to be, right in the providence of God. But she could not see the forest for the trees. And we get like that sometimes. She's got Ruth, who is better than seven sons. And Naomi took the child, laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the woman gave it a name, there's a son born to Naomi. Okay. And so we get the idea here that Naomi takes a much more active role in the child's life. I'm sure Ruth and Boaz were still, you know, they weren't completely out of the picture. But Naomi has the privilege of, of being a mom to this baby. And then we get to verses 18 through 22. Amazing. Not many stories end with a genealogy. Some of them start with one, but this one ends with one. Remember how this story was set? It occurs in the time when the judges ruled. And what happens in the time of the judges? The Bible says during that time there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in what? His own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Sounds real familiar. Look around you. We live in a time of moral relativism. We live in a time where people have turned their backs on God, where even the faithful have become unfaithful. And that's, uh, it's, it's, it's frightening. But the encouraging thing is, even in the midst of all that, God still has a remnant of people that will serve Him, and He will move in their lives, you see. I don't know if America will turn back to God or not. I hope, I hope we haven't gone past the point of no return. I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I once was. But I know this. That God has a remnant here in the United States of America. And there are still people, God has still reserved to himself, some men and women who have not bowed their knee to, to Baal and have not decided that they're going to follow the ways of the world. And they've decided that the Lord, uh, that they're going to follow the Lord. So we end with a, a genealogy. There's ten names here. Could have started with Abraham, could have started with you know, Judah, but, but it starts with Perez. Perez. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nashon, or Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Do y'all pronounce the L in Salmon? Not when it's fish, but I am going to pronounce it here when it's a proper name. I form an opinion about you based on how you pronounce the word Salmon. <laughs> You form your own opinions based on your, you know, preconceived ideas too. <clears throat> anyway, you know what Salmon's famous for? He's famous for his wife. Who was his wife? We sang about her or we talked about her this morning. Rahab. Salmon begat Boaz. 
Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Why end this thing with a genealogy? Well, number one, it gives us David's lineage. I don't think Samuel does. We get David's family tree here. David is going to be the greatest king that Israel has ever known. But there's going to be a greater son of David, Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that all of these events, all this little story, this little microcosm, as it were, this, this little story of ordinary people happening in an ordinary little village outside of Jerusalem are part of something much bigger. You and I are part of something much bigger, brothers and sisters. I could walk out here in this cemetery and I guarantee you there's people up there that prayed for you and me to be here today. Amen. You're here today because somebody prayed for you. Somewhere there was a grandmother or a grandfather that, that was down in an altar saying, God, please save my grandson. Please save my son. Please have mercy on my co-worker, my friend, my wife, my husband. Somebody prayed for you down the way. You and I are part of a bigger story. It's so fitting that Pastor Crabtree is here today because I'm a part of his story and he's a part of mine, you see. I've entered into his labors here. This, you know, I'm not the pioneer here. Sometimes I get the big head, but there was a lot of good preachers before me. And I've entered into their labors. And I'm a part of something much bigger, you see. It's like ripples in a pond, right? You, you throw a rock into the water, and, and there might be that one impact, but then the ripples, the, the, the waves begin to reach out, has far-reaching implications. And this little story here had implications far and wide, and let me just take it to the... Take it to its logical conclusion, and then I'll ask you to pray with me in the altar. We get to Revelation chapter 5, and we see a unique scenario here. A story of a kinsman redeemer. In Revelation 5, verse 1, it says, and I, John said, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Sounds a lot like a title deed. Sounds a lot like some property that needs to be redeemed. Much like the transaction that took place in the city gate in Bethlehem. And a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? There's no more exchanging of sandals. You know, we're not doing that anymore. And the Bible says, And no man in heaven. That's a key phrase there. Didn't say angel. Didn't say creature. Angelic being, divine being, says no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John says, and I wept much because no man, again, a human being, no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, oh boy. Hmm. Echoes of Bethlehem. Echoes of a story with much greater implications than just an older fella in love with a younger woman. Oh, yes. We see this thing is tying up. Uh, this thing has come full circle. This story of redemption is not just the story of the redemption of one widow's property and the redemption of a widow. But now... He says, I beheld in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood, and it doesn't say a lion this time, a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. This, my friend, was the price of redemption. It was the Lamb of God dying on Calvary's cross when the wrath of God that belonged to you and me fell on him and it happened even before he got to the cross he was praying in the garden and his sweat became his drops of blood and they, they beat him beyond recognition and they placed a crown of thorns upon him and they mocked him and spit upon him and plucked his beard and they railed on him and they forced him to carry that cross 
And he's already bleeding profusely and beaten beyond recognition. And then he finally gets there and they nail him and they suspend him between the heavens and the earth. And for hours he hangs in agony because the wrath of God that belonged to you and me has been taken. The curse of sin and death is on him. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. And now the Lamb of God came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We're no longer in the gate of the city in Bethlehem. Now we're before the throne of Almighty God himself. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four, should be creatures probably, but the four creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. There's not ten elders anymore, there's twenty-four. <laughs> Representative of all the blood-washed saints having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. Oh, boy. Are you ready to sing a new song? Saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. Only one is worthy. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. Wow. Amen. Not just people that look like me and talk like me. Not just people that I think are worthy of redemption. But God paid the price for everybody Amen. to be saved. Hallelujah. Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cleanse the whole world of sin. We know that the whole world won't embrace him. Unfortunately. But hell was made for the devil and for his angels. It wasn't made for man. And in verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign where? On the earth. Oh boy. Here's where the land comes in. God not only redeemed the people. Hallelujah. But now. Jesus has reclaimed the title deed to planet earth that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. Amen. See, right now, Satan is, he's, a, he's the, the, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's, he's currently uh, exercising squatter's rights, as, as it were. This is God's world, but the devil is a squatter right now. And he's operating in his dominion, and sadly, many people are under his sway. John says the whole world lies in wickedness under the sway of the wicked one. But now, not only have the people been redeemed, but the land has been redeemed. Planet Earth. And Jesus Christ is coming back to Earth with who? With you and me. Amen. Hallelujah. We're coming back to the Earth and we are going to reign on the Earth. No more. No more the curse. No more shall sin have dominion over this world. No more shall, have the, shall the devil have sway. All the unjust, injustices will be righted. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy, oh I missed this, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's King James for that's so many folks you can't even shake a stick at. Hallelujah. Some people get nervous when I shout, but listen, this is the quietest world you'll ever live in. You go to hell, they're weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. It's not where you want to be. And if you go to heaven, ain't nobody there wanting you to pipe down. Everybody's going to be shouting glory to God. Hallelujah. I believe it's going to take us at least a thousand years to even wrap our brains about everything that Jesus went through in order for you and I to be saved. And when we look at him and we see those nail-scarred hands and we see the scars, that lamb as it had been slain, and we see that he was willing to do that, he was willing to pay the price for you and me, I ain't going to do anything but bow down on my knees and cry, holy is the lamb, holy is the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and glory, honor and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea. And all of, I heard 
saying, Blessing and honor and glory be power unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The Bible says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Amen. You can bow now or you can bow later. You can bow willingly or you can bow in submission. And the four beasts and the twenty elders said, Amen. And they fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Which stand? I don't know where you find yourself in the characters of the story of Ruth. You may be like Naomi. You may be in bitterness of soul, bitterness of spirit. And may I say unto you, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Naomi had ten years of hardship, but within two months of coming back to the house of bread, God turned it all around. Now, we can't all count on the, uh, our situation changing in two months or three months or whatever. But I'll say this, if you're a believer, your best days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. They're ahead of you. Your best days are ahead of you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has paid the price for you to be saved this morning. But he's not going to push the door down. Today is your opportunity to make a claim like Ruth did on your kinsman redeemer. The price has been paid. The ticket has been stamped. The, the purchase has been made. But you have to lay claim on that. So, if you're a believer here who's discouraged, I invite you to come and pray and ask for God to turn your mourning in, into, into joy. If you're lost today without God, if, you need, if you're without hope in this world, you need to come to the Redeemer before it's everlasting too late. And you can come, and just like Ruth, you will find a willing kinsman Redeemer. It's not the will of God that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Would you come?